Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Afternoon, folks. Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. This is your host, Dave Harvey, and I'm I'm tucked away here in the Tallahassee recording studio in urban Tallahassee. Now, when one thinks of the name Paul Tripp, there are many different roles that come to mind. Paul's a pastor. He's a husband, a preacher, a father. Paul's a writer, a seminary professor. He served a number of well-known pastors and churches that are experiencing difficulties. He certainly served Kim and I in, in some of our darkest moments in ministry. But Paul's world has become a bit more complicated lately due to a serious and irreversible physical illness. And so I, you know, I asked Paul to join us today to, to just talk a little bit about how he's doing, talk about what's making a difference as he suffers, and to talk a little bit about how God is meeting him in this unexpected twist of providence. So Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my honor to be with you. Now, Paul, I've alluded to the, the physical difficulties of this past season, but I wanted to, to leave it to you to give some specifics so that we could know how to pray. So fill us in. What, what's, what's happened and, and when did it start? Well, on October 9th of last year, I was having my, what I thought were minor urinary symptoms, uh, called my physician, he said, well, you live in Center City, Philadelphia, right next to a wonderful hospital. Just go there and have them check you out. I thought I'd be an outpatient, be there for a couple hours, get some medication, and be home. What I didn't know was that I was in acute renal failure. My kidneys were dying, and had I waited another 7 to 10 days, probably they would have shut down, and we wouldn't have been doing this interview. Mm. Uh, the thing was not kidney disease and that there was a disease inside of my kidneys, but the damage was created from something outside, but it left irreparable damage to my kidneys. I'm left with 35% of my kidney function. The number one symptom of this level of kidney damage is fatigue. And people who know me know that I've been the quintessential energizer bunny. I've don't ever remember being tired. The only reason I slept at night is because people told me I was supposed to. The word maniac and comes so, to mind. Yeah. So, well, I used to say that uh, sleep is a necessary interruption of an otherwise productive day. <laughs> uh, but so I've been rendered weaker than I've ever been in my life. In fact, one of the, one of the incongruities from a human standpoint for me that I've had to face and deal with is that at the moment of my greatest influence, I'm rendered weaker than I've ever been before. And I want to be honest, I, I don't enjoy weakness. I hate weakness. I hate fatigue. I, I hate not being able to do what I feel like I've been called to do. Uh, I hate the fact that when I get done from a, back from a ministry weekend, it takes a couple days before I literally feel like I can think. So it's, it's been emotionally and spiritually difficult. Now, what's been revealed in that is how much pride I had, maybe I should say idolatrous pride, in my physical health for a person my age, in my ability to produce 
maybe what I thought was confidence in the Lord was was really just self-confidence. And so it's very humbling to face that, but very good. And, you know, when when for a believer, things that you're depending on are taken away, then what you do is you run to what can't be taken away. And you can't, you can render me weak, but you can't take physical or spiritual life from me. You can render me weak, but the grace of God is never, in my life, is never limited by the diagnosis of a physician. Mm. Well, I'm just so sorry to hear about that, Paul. I'm sure I speak for a lot of people to say that we're saddened to think that you've been affected physically, but we're delighted to know that you're still here and you've got 35% of your kidneys to work with and that you're still moving forward. You know, one of the things that I thought of is just how many people that you have helped in your ministry as you've written on suffering and preached on suffering. Um, my small group just went through your video series last year, and uh, that experience was hailed by the entire group as kind of the, the, the highlight of 2014. But I think we're all aware that there's no way that you can anticipate the effect of these kinds of things. And part of what deepens the sense of suffering is the unpredictability of it. You don't see it coming. It's, mm. it's hard to prepare for it. And, and so, are there ways that you have tried to live your life to prepare for the inevitability of some bodily decline? And, and if so, you know, I think that would be really helpful to know. Um, it'd be helpful for us to hear. And, uh, and then also, if you have any thoughts on in, in what ways are you discovering it was impossible to prepare for this. I could have never prepared for this. Yeah. Well, I've always tried to live my life by the principle of prepared spontaneity. Uh, what I mean by that is because I'm not sovereign, I don't know what's coming around the corner, but there are ways of preparing for what you don't know, and, and that is to the degree that you embrace the, the comforting, uh, truths of God's word, to that degree you have, you have things to grab a hold of and things to say to yourself in moments of suffering. For example, um, I'm very aware that when someone suffers, they don't just suffer the thing that they're suffering, they suffer the way that they're suffering the thing that they're suffering. You don't, no one ever comes to your suffering neutral because there are things that you believe, there are things that you think, there are things that you desire, uh, and all of those things either help you to find comfort in your suffering or they make your suffering much more difficult. An, an example, uh, one of the things that's been just so sweet to me is that there are no surprises with God. There are no mysteries with God. God has never caught up short that uh, the one who is my Savior is also sovereign over everything that happens in my life. The one who I look to for life isn't scrambling to figure how to deal with what's going on at this moment. That's a huge help and a huge comfort when you're going through what you never thought you would go through. Because it, seem, it seems like there's something about 
suffering that just I know for me when I suffer or I think I'm suffering I you know my world just kind of shrinks it shrinks to me and and uh, my needs become big and God becomes small so what you're doing and what you're talking about is just fixing God at the center and God's word at the center yeah and I, and I, I was going to say that that because you really can't be fully prepared for what you don't know is coming for what is way outside of the boundaries of anything you would expect. You said it well, the, the typical thing to do is pull in the whole borders of your world to the limited turf of your suffering. And, and what's really vital to do is to fight that and to push yourself beyond the borders of just the, the suffering of the moment. For example, how can I even use my suffering to help others? How can I use my suffering to bring glory to God? How can I serve my family through my, my suffering? How can I find joy outside of my suffering. So, so you're, you're trying to push yourself beyond the narrow confines of having 24-7 every thought consumed by your suffering. One of the things that I think about when you, when you talk about family is how su- suffering is, is magnified by knowing that our, uh, if you're married, that your, your spouse is watching, that your spouse is aching over over your pain. I mean, I'm sure Luella right now is having to negotiate some of that. Um, Paul, why don't you just talk for a second to the spouses of those who have loved ones who are suffering or will suffer, and, you know, what does it look like to, to help them and to love them and to comfort them in a meaningful way? Well, I want to start by saying that I'm I'm blessed by going through this journey with uh, a woman of remarkable faith. Luella just has an unshakable confidence in God, and, and that not only served her well, it, it served me well. And there are, there are ways in which you, you can't protect anybody in your family because you're not sovereign. I, the first 36 hours of my 10-day original hospital stay in October were uh, I experienced my body went into trauma. I started having these spasms that would happen every couple minutes that were just the worst level of pain that I could imagine. I can't imagine mm. that there could be such pain. Wow. My, my son, who's 36, and Luella were there in the room with me Ethan said he didn't know that pain of that level existed in the human experience. Oh, my. Uh, and, and I can remember uh, at one point Ethan just putting his hands on me because my whole vo- body would, would seize in, in pain. And I, c- I can remember as I was sort of in and out, I wasn't unconscious, but just in and out of awareness, uh, just looking at his face and seeing this look of just utter helplessness. I mean, this is a dad. Mm. Uh, and I can remember Luella 
through the one night, just basically with me all night, staying up with me all night, just reassuring me that I wasn't alone, that she was with me and, and God was with me. So those are painful experiences that you just can't, you, you can't uh, protect people from. That's part of what God calls you to when you commit yourself to a relationship to another person. Pain doesn't allow you to manage it in a way that you can, you can protect people. And, and sometimes the worst form of suffering can be watching somebody that you, you love dearly suffer and not, not being able to do anything about it. Right. The, the other thing I was going to say is that, is that I think the, the thing that can be most difficult for family and that you can do something about is what I would call the meism of suffering, that unless you expand your borders beyond your suffering, Suffering can be selfish and grumbling and dissatisfied and entitled and demanding where you allow yourself to do and say things that you shouldn't do and say. And, and you excuse that because you're suffering. And that's very hard for the people who are with you because in their heart of hearts, they know that's not about suffering. They know that's just being mean. Mm-hmm. And that's painful because they want to move towards you, but they're feeling attacked by you. And I, I, I just, one of the things I, I determined, and I didn't always do this perfectly, but I determined that I didn't want to be uh, angry at God or angry at the people around me. I can say that one of the, one of the Blessings of God's grace is God has, has graced me with the ability not to be angry at him, not to question his goodness, you know, to cry out in honesty in, in suffering, and not just to go after the people around me in unloving ways because they weren't meeting my needs at the moment I wanted them met in the way that I want them met. Because there's a sense where the, you know, the most dangerous feature of suffering for believers is that, that, that subtle relocation of, of God to the margins of their suffering or the margins of their circumstances or their ailment or whatever it is. And, you know, Kim has asked me at times, you know, how she can help. And I've just said, you know, I, this might seem so simple, but just remind me of God's sovereign goodness because when it comes to things that are going wrong or some way that I feel like I'm suffering, I can tend to affirm God's control, but jettison his goodness and kindness and love, and it results in my a belief in a God who's very hard. Yeah, and I, I think there's, there's something further that's, that's dangerous in that. If you allow suffering to cause you to bring God into the court of your judgment— and you begin to question, cross-examine his goodness, faithfulness, grace, and love in such a way that causes you to doubt those things, here's what's devastating about that. You don't tend to run for help to somebody who you no longer trust. Mm. And so you're not, only, you're not only dealing with something that's bigger than you, suffering is... It takes us way beyond the borders of our natural wisdom and strength. But now the place that you can run for help 
you don't run to anymore. And I've had people say that to me in counseling. What difference does it make if I read my Bible? What difference does it make if I go to my small group? I can't go to, go to church and sing those hymns or worship songs anymore because look what God's doing in my life. And so it's, it, that means that a moment of suffering has the power to do long-term damage in just your rest, confidence, seeking, celebrating, reliance on God. Paul, let me just ask you to, to speak to something for a second. Part of the reason why this website was started, the amicalled.com site and the podcast exists, is to serve leaders, serve those who may be called to ministry. And and I, I wanted to get your thoughts on whether a, a call to ministry, endemic to it, inherent to a call to ministry, is there a unique role for suffering? In other words, should a should a man who's called to ministry come to terms with the reality that by going into ministry, he will suffer? Oh, absolutely. In, in, um, what, in what ways? I, I, what ways make it distinct I, or unique? I just don't think there's, there's just any doubt about that. Okay, here's the first way. This is probably the most fundamental way, is that God is going to display his glory through, through your life however he wants to. And that may not match your ministry success dreams. Hmm. It may be that the way God displays his glory is by bringing you through things that you would have never chosen for yourself. And the watching world of your congregation is graced by watching their pastor go through that. And they see the goodness of the Savior, the presence of the Savior, the confidence and rest that one can find in the Savior through that. So that's the first reason. Second, you, you minister in a fallen world. It's God's choice between the already of my conversion and the not yet of my home growing to keep me in a world that's terribly broken. You know, Romans 8 says the whole world groans waiting for redemption. In fact, verse 18 uh, assumes suffering. Suffering is not a unique experience of a few individuals. Suffering is the universal experience of everybody living between the already and the not yet. Some form of suffering, uh, whether that's physical sickness, whether that's financial need, whether that's demise of ministry, whether that's personal attack, whether that's rebellion of a child, whether that's the dissolution of a marriage, whether that's gross racism or spiritual persecution or war or political corruption, we live in a broken world. So, so. Somewhere in your ministry, suffering will enter your door. I think the other thing is that being a person of public influence, even if that's a congregation of 100, opens you up to levels of judgment and criticism that you just won't escape when you're gathered together on a regular basis where, with a group of people who are still in the middle of their sanctification. Uh, and every pastor experiences the disappointment of uh, being under attack or being criticized by people who you sought to love and, and sought to help through their own spiritual journey. Yeah, I also think about um, one other factor, and that is that there, there is an enemy, and he is very serious about uh, about taking down 
spiritual leaders. He's a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour, and and he he wants to strike the shepherd. And uh, I, I you know I'm I'm reformed in my in my soteriology and in the things that I believe about scripture and salvation, but it doesn't eliminate the reality of a dark and, and powerful force that delights in leveling leaders. Yeah, and the, and the you know, world of flesh, the devil. You, the problem is we don't know. We just, you know, what is the, the origin of what I'm going through at the moment that I'm going through it? Uh, have I experienced spiritual attack? Sure. The fact of the matter is that I still need to tell myself the same things, and I still need to run to the same place for help. That, that's a great point because the, um, so often in, in the rhythm of life, the, the origin, you just don't have clarity on the origin, and so the response remains the same. Which I think is, uh, again, I think it's one, though, that's one of those places where the simplicity of the gospel is so helpful. Uh, my way of, of thinking about this is you, you probably won't ever establish long-term restful peace of heart by having your life all figured out because you won't ever have your life all figured out. Rest is really found in a reliance upon in trust of the one who has it all figured out. And that doesn't mean he will make it known to you but it means that your world is not out of control. It's out of your control, but it's under control of one who is the ultimate definition of what's good, true, right, and faithful. Paul, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was pondering our interview together is um, is some of the ways that, that in your thinking and in your writing you've tried to anticipate seasons of life and rhythms of life. And, you know, one of the things that, that I've noticed is that um, wh- when I was in my 30s and 40s, I tended to look forward a lot. Um, but now that I'm in my 50s, I, I tend to look back a lot more. And I know you're in your 60s now, and maybe you could just comment on where, where does one tend to look when they're suffering in their 60s? You know, I'm, I'm probably not the one to ask that to say anything helpful because I just don't, I'm just not a person who does a whole lot of archaeological work in my life, you know, sort of digging back in civilizations that were and, and tossing them around and thinking about it and trying to find meaning for those experiences. It's just not, just not my thought or emotional habit. Uh, well, maybe you could speak on for those that you've you tend to counsel, and what kind of patterns you see emerging as people move from their fifties to sixties. Um, you know, what what kind of things are they focusing on that's good, and what kind of things are they looking at that's that's bad? What I was going to say that I hope will will be helpful is that I'm more excited about and engaged in what God has in front of me and the things that I'm able to, to think about and to communicate now that I could have never thought about at 30, that I didn't know at 40, that I now understand and can impart to people 
much younger than me. That's, that's very, very exciting. And one of the ways that I think that you, you deal with regret is by, by thanking God for the experience-forged wisdom that he's given you that now colors in ministry everything you say and everything you write and everything you try to share with others. The, 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 the bad habit is to live in the past and to wallow in, whether it's silent or not, silent shame or regret. I'm deeply persuaded that the only way you can deal, the only way you can deal with the past is in the present. We have no ability to go back. And so you deal with the past in the present. What have I learned? What is my legacy? What people do I need to reach, reach out to? You know, you, you, you're asking present sort of questions and you're doing that with, with joy because the beautiful message of the gospel is that it's a message of fresh starts and new beginnings, no matter how old you are. Well, what do you say to somebody, Paul, um, let's say a young leader who, who might be listening and say, yeah, I, I hear you, but in order to really learn those things, I think I'm going to have to experience them myself. I, I don't think just hearing your experience is going to help me in some kind of transformational way. What, what would you say to him? You know, I, I think that one of the ways that God crafts faith in us is by putting in our pathway people of faith who are examples of faith, who are God's instruments of faith in our lives. I don't think it's always the case that you can only learn things by experience. I used to have a theology professor who said the only, only thing experience teaches you is how to do repetitive tasks better. <laughs> and the reason for that is even with experience, you always bring a worldview. You always bring an interpretation to experience. That's why there's old fools. There's people who've lived seven decades who are fools. So uh, I think what God does in grace is gives me warning voices, preparatory voices in my life that begin to grow me, begin to alert me to what's ahead, so that when it happens, I bring wisdom to the moment, not foolishness. Yeah, and it seems like one of the, the characteristics of the, of the fool in Proverbs is that he can only live by, by experience or learning from experience, um, that he can't live based upon the counsel, the wise counsel of, of others. So it really is an indictment on us, it seems, to, to say that we can only live or we can only learn from, from experience. Sure, and, and, and I, th- I think it's not only an indictment, it, the naivety of that is that even when I'm giving those experiences, I'll learn all the right things from them. Because I come to experience neutral. Well, I don't come to experience neutral. Uh, we've all seen people in our lives who we've, we've stood back and wondered, why didn't they learn something from that? And so to the degree that God is faithful to me, and he will be, of putting those experienced voices in my life, what he's enabling me to do is now carry their wisdom into 
these experiences of life. Now, God will use those experiences to grow and sanctify me, but he's preparing me by giving me voices of wisdom. Paul, as a man who has served for decades and decades in ministry, um, you're in your 60s now, you're experiencing uh, some physical suffering, and your, your, your scope is narrowing a little bit, and yet I know you, I know you have deep and uh, important burdens for the next generation of pastors. You've, you know, some of your most recent writing has been directed at pastors. Some of your travel is strategically aimed at, at pastors and leaders. Well, what are the kind of things that are pulsing uh, in your heart right now for, for pastors? And the next generation of pastors in particular. Yeah, this is this has not been t- meant to be an advertisement, but uh, I have a book coming out in the fall on the awe of God. It's subtitled, Why It Matters for Everything You Think, Say, and Do. And my concern is that ministry, pastoral ministry, can be fueled by a whole lot of different things. It's not, it's not necessarily good to assume that ministry is fueled, propelled, ignited by a worship of God, an awe of God. I, I can remember as, in my days as, as a seminary professor that I had students in my class who I became convinced weren't in seminary because they loved Jesus or they loved people. They were in seminary because they loved ideas. My sort of not-so-kind characterization for these people were they were field geeks. They would love computer technology. They, they would be good philosophy students. They just loved the labyrinthine nature of Christian theology. And they, were, they demonstrated in ways a disregard, even a despising of of people and and in ways communicated that people were in the in the way of their vision for for ministry. Mm. So I, I I think there are so many things that can grab my heart: the the love of ideas, the stimulation of acclaim, the glory of power and control, even if it's over a small group of people. Those things are intoxicating. And I think in ministry, the kingdom of self does a real good job of masquerading as the kingdom of God. Mm. Paul, this, is, uh, this has been very helpful. And uh, one of the things that I, I wanted to do before we wrapped up is to just pose one last question. And I think, I think this is probably the most important question I'll ask because— uh, I wanted to find out from you, first, what kind of things do you have coming up in terms of ministry travel? And and I think that will lead me to ask you the second question, which is, how can we pray for you in this season? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, my travel is, uh, will be sort of limited to a couple times uh, a month. Uh, my heart is really to be a servant to the Church of Jesus Christ, to stand alongside pastors, help them with their pastoral work, but 
but help them in areas of my own ex- expertise with marriages and families in their congregation. I'll be doing a lot of those events. Uh, I will be continue to do leadership events. In fact, every weekend we try to attach a leadership event to the weekend so I can comfort, confront, encourage leaders of a local church. So it'll be in a, a, a regular pace of those. I, I have a couple of international trips in the next year, and that's sort of what my, my schedule will, will look like. I forgot what the second question was. Yeah, I just wanted to know how we can pray for you. Yeah, that's an important question. Um, well, I, I, I think, obviously, I always need uh, wisdom for making ministry choices. We have way more opportunities than we have slots on our schedule. But, but I think the, the biggest thing for me is I want to live and minister out of contentment for what God has planned for me right now, that I wouldn't be, you know, expending the emotional, spiritual energy of my heart wrestling with what's going on right now. There are huge implications there are huge financial implications for the ministry to all the events that I've canceled and the fact that I'm never going to be ministering at the pace that I was once ministering. There are implications in terms of what I'm able to produce and just being content with that so that I don't want to wrestle my way through ministry, even if it's it's sort of quiet discontent. I want to be I want to be content with what God has planned for me, knowing that I don't have to hunger for God's best. Mm. I am getting God's best for Paul Tripp right now. Well, that uh, that prayer request is so good. I want to be I want to be included in it as well. So, if any yeah. listeners are praying for Paul, please include <laughs> me in that prayer too. Paul, thank you, thank you so much for entrusting us with your prayer needs and. And for taking t- the time to just to help us see and interpret all that's going on with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Folks, this has been the Am I Called podcast for, uh, for loads of stuff. I'm talking about free stuff on, on leadership and calling and ministry, as well as more podcasts with folks like uh, Tim Challies and Randy Alcorn and Scotty Smith and yeah, other other stuff with Paul Tripp too. Just just log in on amicalled.com. This has been your host, Dave Harvey. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Am I Called podcast, which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit amicalled.com.